Tonight's first Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 15. I will reading verse 1 to 6. You can find on page 10 of your pew Bibles. It's Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, These men shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, the second reading is from Rome, Rome's, and um, we're reading chapter 4, verse 1 to 8. You can find it on page 916 of the Pew Bibles. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about, but not, before, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him, who justified the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God reckons righteous apart from work. Blessed are those whose iniquity are forgiven and whose sin are covered. Blessed is the one, who, the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. So uh, this evening... <clears throat> We're going to look at something that you uh, almost certainly believe and at the same time almost equally certainly don't fully experience. We're going to look at the gap between belief and experience. Um, there's one version of that gap which is called hypocrisy, right? One version where you believe something and then experience something differently or do something differently is called hypocrisy. That's not what we're talking about tonight, particularly. We're talking about something that's actually much sadder, much more kind of distressing, a different version of the gap because all of our peace and confidence and joy depend on closing this gap. For the next couple of months, as Richard mentioned, we return to the mighty letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, uh, which we began last year, looking at chapters 1 to 3. And if Romans is about anything, it's about God. The glorious, righteous God, who in overflowing love makes and keeps covenant commitment. He overcomes every obstacle of sin and evil. His hatred of sin, which destroys and defaces his creation, is matched and accepted 
motivated only by his love and fierce faithfulness to that creation. And especially to those who within that creation bear his image and likeness. And so the gospel is the great announcement of the great events of the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. Written in blood and the empty tomb on the pages of history by which God wins salvation. Salvation, which is not an escape from the dreariness and earthiness of this world to some sort of floaty spiritual place, but rather the renewing and reviving of this world to be all that God intended it to be and for us to be all that God intended us to be. Ruling and reigning and serving and rejoicing in it. And where we left off last year was at the end of chapter 3, uh, which closes with this kind of wonderfully insight by the Apostle. Uh, his claim throughout this first section of Romans is that God is both impartial and at the same time preferential. So it's a very interesting claim. Uh, for the Apostle Paul, it's obvious that salvation is to the Jew first, first of all to Israel, to the people that God called through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, did that amazing works of salvation and bring them out of the land of, of, uh, of Ur, where Abraham started and then rescued them uh, in their descendants from Egypt. But if salvation is to the Jew first, Paul is absolutely insistent that it's also to the Greek, to, to the Gentile, that is, to the non-Jew. And what's so brilliant about the end of chapter 3 is that he makes this point by using the, the fundamental confession of faith of the Jew themselves. Uh, you, you may know that every morning, a Jewish person, every Jewish person would say every morning and every evening, uh, Shema, that's the only word I know in Hebrew, Shema, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God, and he made everyone. There's not two gods who kind of have half each, it's not like God has got the God of the Jews only and has, has, has let go of the rest in order to rot. No, there's one God, the Apostle Paul insists, and that means he's got to be the God of everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. Absolutely at the same time as preferential. And the key to this is that God has forgiven sins, which is another way to say that he's justified the ungodly so that there's now no condemnation but only joy and peace and hope. And that's what chapter 4 goes on to lay out for us. And as I say, uh, what it says is something that you almost certainly believe and almost equally as certainly don't fully experience. And so tonight we're going to look at that gap. The way we're going to do it, you can see uh, on the outline... Uh, we're going to see just from these first eight verses of Romans chapter 4, three things, the reality of the forgiveness of sins, second, the experience of the forgiveness of sins, and then finally, how to close the gap between that reality and that experience. So first then, the reality of forgiveness. Now, um, I don't know whether you've ever been really deeply hurt by someone. Um, you'll know if you have been deeply hurt by someone that forgiveness always costs. Forgiveness always costs. It costs you to forgive someone. Um, there's no such thing as costless forgiveness. It, it, you can't sweep stuff under the carpet. Stuff that you can sweep under the carpet is called forbearance. That's an alternative to forgiveness. No, forgiveness always 
costs. It might be free, but it's never cheap. And in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul lays out the cost to God of the forgiveness of your and my sins. Massively expensive. As God puts forward Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. And in chapter 4, he fills in the picture of forgiveness by painting both its content and its character. The content of forgiveness is described in multiple ways, each one bringing out a different facet of the beautiful reality that it is. And it's particularly in relation to David that this is highlighted. And so on uh, the one hand, forgiveness is when sins are covered. Covering is one of those universal human experiences. There, there are a number of these sorts of things. Not everyone in human history has, has, has you know, played Game Boy or, or whatever, PS3 or so. I don't even... I'm now, yeah. Space Invaders was the last computer game I played, actually. Uh, not everyone in human history has played Space Invaders. Uh, everyone at all times in all cultures knows what covering is. Uh, whether it's covering our nakedness by wearing clothes, whether it's covering dead bodies with a shroud in some way or other, whether it's covering some uh, illness or injury, um, we always, uh, throughout all of human history, across all of human cultures, we know that covering uh, is sometimes the right thing to do. And uh, similarly, where there's shame or exposure or imperfection, not, not physically so much, but morally, personally, we also seek to cover now, of course, there are wrong versions of covering, and you know what we call the wrong version of a covering? We call that a cover-up. Uh, so, for example, something evil is done, like bugging your political opponent's uh, national conference in an office uh, complex, you know, maybe called Watergate, and, and you're about to get discovered having done that, and that's a really bad thing for an American president to authorise, right? Really, And so what do you do? You use every legitimate and illegitimate means at your disposal to cover it up. But you see, it's still the same point. What we all know to do is to cover some things over. And here's the thing, what it is for your sins to be forgiven is for your sins to have been covered, says the Apostle Paul quoting David. Utterly covered over impervious to sight by anyone else, by God himself, and even by you. Imagine that you could legitimately, I mean absolutely legitimately because of the sacrifice of atonement by his blood, right? You only get to chapter 4 by having gone through chapter 3. Chapter 4 only works because of chapter 3. Imagine if you could legitimately, because of the sacrifice of atonement by his blood, cover over everything weak or cowardly or stupid or selfish or brutal or devious that you had ever done. Cover it over so that it was never seen again, ever, by anyone. No one else, not even God, not even yourself. It, it's like you had some sort of tragic brain injury which meant that any time you kind of reflected on yourself and your life Nothing bad that you'd ever done could ever come to mind was covered over. There's just no grit there, no 
black spot, no smudges, no dark stuff. It's all been utterly, beautifully, righteously covered. Well, that is the reality of your forgiveness. Or another way to put it is to say in verse 8 that your sin is not reckoned against you. Uh, It turns out that this word reckon is one of the key words in the chapter. Uh, It comes from a field of human endeavour which I think is underrated by many people but which I myself personally uh, am a fan. It's the field of accounting. You see, everyone laughs when I say account. You know, it's accounting's a very anyway. The accountants amongst you will know what I'm saying. E, you're with me here, right? You're, yeah, absolutely. That's what I thought. Yes, nothing like balancing. Oh, such a sweet feeling. Anyway, when 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 you do account, when uh, one of the key things in the this term of reckoning is an accounting term. It means put something down on the account, write it down to the ledger, record it. Uh, in about a week, uh, my wife Katrina and I are about uh, going to make the single largest purchase we've ever made. We've bought uh, off the plan an apartment in Summer Hill. Uh, we went there today and it's just about finished and we're going to move in. Uh, nothing else is changing for me. I'm not changing role at all. It's just where we live and who owns the place we live in. Instead of living in a church-owned rectory, we're going to live in our own apartment and the Glovers and Laura Southern are going to move into the rectory here. Now, of course, we can't pay for the apartment. That would be a ridiculous thought. And so we've signed some documents that agree that the bank is going to give us an obscenely vast amount of money with which we can pay for the apartment. So that actually we're going to swap living in a church-owned house for living in a bank-owned house. Now, you can stake your life on the fact that the bank has a great, big, fat, black ledger book. Okay, now it might be, it might be digital, uh, although this bank, it might even actually, I mean, we, we, we love to hate banks so much right now, right? They probably actually have a real ledger book that's black and fat. And they are going to write down on one side of that ledger a really large number. And gradually over about the next 150 years, on the other side, we're going to make monthly payments to gradually pay it off. But imagine if for some reason they decided not to write it down in our account. To not reckon it to our ledger. To just leave it off, that, that, that initial amount that we first buy and then, and then all the, the, we first buy and then all the interest payments that we have to pay. They, they, none of it gets reckoned to our account. And then all the, 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 the establishment fees and the, the line fees and the because your name's Andrew fee and then there's because your name's Katrina fee and every other fee that they, they, they made, none of them get reckoned to our account. How good would that be to not have your debt reckoned to your account? How freeing would that be? How many more properties would you race out and buy? No, no, don't go down that thought. But you can see the point, can't you? What the Apostle Paul is saying to you through great David is that this is the reality of your forgiveness. Not one of your sins. Not one of every single moral failure or mistake. Not one of any accusation that anyone makes against you about what a loser you are 
or even more wounding the ways that you make those accusations about yourself, not one of them actually appears on your spiritual statement. They're completely absent, totally missing. Your moral and spiritual ledger has not got one thing against you written on it because it's not reckoned. What glorious freedom would that be personally? With what cleanness would you rejoice in your life? With what overflowing love and grace and confidence, confidence which doesn't crush other people but that lifts them up, would you relate to others? Well, that's the reality of your forgiveness. Or, or there's another way to put it. Uh, this time it's in verse 5. It's, it's that you're an ungodly person and that you've been justified. Uh, to be justified, justification uh, is a relationship term first and foremost. It's a, it's a way of saying that you're in the right with someone um, or you're okay with them. You know how um, if you have kind of um, um, one-on-one relationship classes, have you ever done this, or, or marriage counselling or, or this sort of stuff, uh, you, what you, you do is you're... One of the things you're taught is um, a really great little skill, actually, which is if hence, but you, you you say from time to time, "Are we okay? Are we okay?" And this you learn this hand movement too that goes with it. Are we okay? And then the person says back to you, "Yeah, we're okay." And then you say, "Okay." <laughs> to be okay, well, that's to be justified. That's what the Bible means when it says being justified. It's a relationship term. But it's also, at the same time, a judicial term, which means that it's to do with the context of the courtroom. And so the, the relationship that you're to be okay with is a relationship with the court. Now, here's the thing. The thing about justification is that you're only supposed to justify the godly. N- numerous times, actually, the Bible says, only justify that is, say, say or declare and make in the right, in the okay, only godly people. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15 says, One who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Did you hear that? One who justifies the wicked, the ungodly, is an abomination to the Lord. And what do we read here in Romans chapter 4, verse 5? Who's the one who justifies the ungodly? It's God himself. The only necessary criteria at this point for justification is that you be ungodly. Now, did I mention before that the only way you can get to chapter 4 of Romans is via chapter 3, and so that's going to explain how that all works. We're not going back there. We did that last year. You can get the tape. And the result of being justified is that you're in the right. You're okay. I was in a a training group this week uh, leading a a discussion that uh, was dealing with these sorts of things and um, uh, someone in the group uh, put it in a way that really struck me very powerfully and kind of brought a fresh angle to it that I I wanted to share with you tonight. I'm going through a hard time, uh, just a pretty kind of one of those treacle moments in life. You know when, when it's like you're not, you're not walking freely, it's just treacle and every, every, everything's a trudge and he's not out of it yet, so he wasn't sort of, you know, H-A-P-P-Y and that sort of thing. He's still, he's there, but he can see some daylight at the end of the tunnel. And he's been reflecting in the midst of the hard time, 
um, how to kind of really appropriate this reality of being justified, how to live it out. And he said that he'd, he'd learned to say something to himself. And, and he put it like this, and I've changed his name. Uh, he said, one of the things I've been um, just uh, saying to myself, or actually kind of more genuinely allowing God to say to my heart, is this, it's good to be John Smith. I found that a very powerful expression of, of this reality of being justified. I'd, I don't think I'd ever quite um, uttered that phrase to myself. Uh, and you might say, well, for pretty obvious <laughs> reasons, actually. It's good to be John Smith under the justification of... It's good to be Andrew Caddy under the justification of God. Try that for yourself just now. Uh, not, not only just now, but, but, it, but throughout this week. Uh, allow the Lord to speak His justification word into your heart by saying, in a sense, from Him to yourself, it's good to be... And then add your name. Not it's, it's okay or it's pretty crappy or it's just pretty hard or it's good to be you. Because that's the reality when you're forgiven, when you're a justified person. So that's the content of forgiveness and it's, it's, it's glorious. Uh, much more briefly, we learn too here about the character of forgiveness when it comes from God, you see it in verse 4, it comes as a gift. Uh, the essence of a gift is that it is free. We, we know that this distinction between free and costly works. The gift is free to you, but it's costly to the person who gives it to you, at least if it's a, a you know expensive gift. It's free to you, but it's costly to them. And, 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 and the, the character of forgiveness from God is that it's free to us, though it's costly to Him. It's an act of what is rightly called grace. And this is contrasted with a different setting, which is where something is not given freely to you, rather it's given to you because it's the payment of a debt, of what's due. Uh, Paul cites that classic example of a debt, of what's due, which is employment. Uh, some of you are employed. Uh, when you go to work, you do your work, you bring your expertise and your competence and your labor and all of the gifts and abilities and uh, so on that you have. You, you give to the person, well, you don't give, you work for them and that puts them in your debt so that they owe you wages and when they pay you your wages uh, you say thank you because that's just a nice sort of polite thing to do but you don't mean it right you don't thank them for anything because they haven't done anything for you all they've done is something for themselves which is that they paid you their debt you gave them well you did something for them where the price was that they do something for you that's not grace that's due that's not a gift. And it's the exact opposite of that, the Apostle says, with the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness of God is a gift of sheer grace. And notice what that means. You need to pay very careful attention to this. This is, this is incredibly significant. If it is the case that forgiveness comes to you as a sheer gift, that you've done precisely no work to earn it. 
Do you realize what that means is that there's precisely nothing that you can do to unearn it? Do you, do you see the iron, brilliant, gracious, logical necessity of that? If, if something comes to you as a sheer gift out of the grace heart of God and it comes to you completely apart from anything you've done to deserve it, then there is nothing that you can do to undeserve it. Because it came out of the pure grace heart of God. The character of forgiveness is that it comes to you as a gift and so it's totally untouchable. Now like I said, uh, these things, this content and this character of forgiveness from God uh, is something I suspect you almost certainly believe. Right? Nothing have I said tonight that have you heard that is new, I imagine. There are hardly any people in this room who walk through life thinking that they're condemned rather than justified people. Right? That's just, my guess is that's just not how you walk around. Uh, there's hardly anyone who thinks that their sins will be reckoned to their moral account so that they have an enormous spiritual debt galactically beyond anything they could possibly hope to repay. That's just not how you think of yourself, is it? There's hardly anyone in this room uh, who thinks that their sins are exposed and hideous a weeping spiritual sore on their souls, obvious to themselves and God. If, if we were to do a, a test which had some boxes to tick, you would all pass the test. Congratulations. In fact, what's interesting is there are hardly any people in the world out there, outside of this room, in the culture or society around us, either that would disagree with the Apostle Paul here also, not your, your family or friends or colleagues or neighbours who, who may not have a single Christian bone uh, in their bodies. If you ask the average person on the street whether the things they've done wrong are forgiven so that they won't be reckoned to their account and that they're justified, they might look at you a bit weirdly. But after they understood what it was that you were talking about, they would agree entirely. That's why when you try just mentioning, just suggesting the possibility of of judgment at all, you know, what do they do? They're furious. How dare you say that about me? In part, it's just because of the kind of Christian hangover of our culture from all of those years uh, when Christianity was kind of central in the life of our culture. In part, it's because we've lost almost all capacity for personal moral seriousness uh, in our culture. Uh, though we love standing in moral judgment over people and wasn't it great fun this week to just hate on the banks? We just hate the banks. Partly it's because I think as a rule uh, pretty much everyone sets their moral standards just slightly below your moral performance. Right? So the way you set your moral standards, you see you perform here and so you set your standard here. So guess what? You fly over it. Leap over it with flying colours, even if it's one and a quarter centimetres off the ground. Great job hitting that tennis ball over that net that's flat on the ground. So like I say, believers in Jesus Christ and pretty much everyone else for that matter all agree with what the Apostle says here. I mean, great. And yet... And yet, the experience of forgiveness. You see, I want to say, 
uh, hardly any of the time, I suspect that we actually fully experience what we believe. Hardly any of the time does anyone, even the fiercest and most vocal atheist who absolutely denies the entire moral framework on which this whole teaching is based, fully experience what he or she believes. Most of us, so many of us, engage in a moral trudge through life that has heavy burdens on our backs. So I want to invite you to do just a kind of moment of uh, self-examination and reflection at this point in time. You see, there are lots of telltale signs of, of this gap in between the belief about forgiveness and the experience of forgiveness. One of those telltale signs is responding with defensiveness when someone challenges you. The, more and more, I think that defensiveness, the, the, the level of our defensiveness is an incredibly astute and insightful gauge as to how deeply the gospel has gotten into our hearts. They are at work, or even worse, at home, uh, and someone, you know, a, a parent or a sibling or a colleague makes a comment that points out in a gentle and sweet manner that you've messed up in some way or you've been a jerk. Or maybe not so gentle or sweet. Which is true, maybe not quite as true as they said, but true nonetheless. And instead of being slightly miffed at this slight overstatement of a slight lack of perfect competence, what happens? What happens? Your stomach churns. It's that person again. How can my flatmate say that again? Your stomach churns. Your heart starts pumping faster. The emotions rise. You can actually feel your face getting hotter as the blood rises. And you have a classic defensive reaction. Boom. Why? Because for some reason, although you believe that you're forgiven and that your sins are covered and that your mistakes are not reckoned to you in any way that ultimately matters, you don't experience that beautiful forgiveness fullness. Instead, you experience deficit. You experience a gap or a hole and therefore you experience the need to justify yourself. That's what that is, isn't it? You're justifying yourself. Well, why are you justifying yourself if God's already justified you? What do you think is left to do beyond what God has done in justifying you? How much more do you think your justification of yourself is going to add to God's justification of you? Do you see? It's the gap between what we believe and what we experience. It might be defensiveness, it might be, on the other hand, a kind of really angry assertiveness about yourself that demands that people respect you because you're not quite sure of how respectable you really are. Because although you believe that your sins are covered, you don't experience the reality of that covering. It might be a whole different other scale, a quiet, sweet, constant impression management of other people. That the, the way this takes form for you is you just are really, really good at making sure people think you're pretty nice. By never seeing you, never really getting close to you, never really sharing with them, never really exposing yourself. And so there's always a kind of dreadful, nagging loneliness in your life. It might be a kind of cynicism that never throws yourself into anything, never really backs or takes risks in case you end up looking silly, a kind of um, ironic detachment. You're always happy to laugh and, and stand back and see the sort of 
ironic side of what people are doing. Seinfeld, if you ever watched Seinfeld, was just like a, uh, an ode to ironic detachment and the, the, the misery of it. The misery, selfishness of it. But, but why would you be worried about looking silly if your sins are covered, you're a justified person so that you only ever are in fact beautiful? You see, as much as we believe that we're forgiven by and justified before God, like Paul says, uh, what you might call your theological justification, so, so many of us actually function as though we're forgiven by and justified by ourselves, by our own efforts and achievements and excellence and goodness in what you might call your psychological justification. We, we separate it out. We can tick boxes all day long about what the gospel has done for us and how God has forgiven us and how justified we are and all of that. Theologically, we get our justification all T's crossed and I's dotted. But we've cut off and separate out our psychological justification and we're frantic and terrified and fearful and uncertain. And you can't fake it. You see, you just can't fake psychological justification. It'll catch you out every time if you split it off from theological justification. And you miss out, tragically, devastatingly, you miss out on the confidence and the peace and the capacity to handle weakness and failure and the resilience that comes from not just knowing, but in the day-to-day trenches of life, experiencing the real, deep, covering, justifying forgiveness of sins. It's too sad for words to have a gap, don't you think? It's too sad for words. So what can we do about it? How do we close the gap? You may have noticed so far that we haven't touched on the, uh, what is probably actually the key word in this whole uh, section, namely faith. <clears throat> it's faith that Paul contrasts with the whole working for a wage and due, right? And in particular, it's faith that Abraham had that was reckoned, there's that same word Actually, it's the same accounting word, credited to the account, entered onto the, the ledger, but this time not as sin, rather as righteousness, just another way of describing that sweet forgiveness of sins that we've been looking at. Now, Paul appeals to Abraham here because Abraham is the, the kind of the fountainhead, the starting point of the people of God. Abraham is the one God goes to in Genesis chapter 12 to fix up all the mess that's happened in Genesis chapters 3 to 11. And so the whole idea here for Paul is that if, if this is the case for Abraham, then it's the case for you and me too, for anyone who's one of God's people. And the fundamental thing about Abraham, we read in Genesis chapter 15, 6, is that he believed God and it was credited, reckoned, written down on his ledger as righteousness. And so what is this faith and how does it help us close the gap? Now, it's interesting, in our translation, uh, we use two different words to render the same Greek stem. In verse 4, and at the end of verse 5, it's this word faith or belief, but at the start of verse 5, it's trust. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to look at more detail about what it was that Abraham believed God for. But what I want to do now is to highlight this essence of trust, and in particular, trust as a handing over of yourself. <clears throat> When you trust someone, 
uh, say you get into a car that they're driving. Uh, Prince Philip, you may have heard, uh, if you're interested in these things, uh, at the age of 97 decided that the time had come for him not to drive anymore. This is mostly because he drove into a ditch the other day and nearly killed himself, uh, but I think he's bowed to pressure and, and um, there's a reason you would never get in the car with Prince Philip, because you don't trust him and you're right not to trust him as a driver. No doubt he's a very fine chap. <clears throat> and that's because when you trust someone w- with a car, what you're doing is you're putting your life, you're handing over your life into their hands. Uh, say with, a, with a, a colleague at work, a friend, if you trust them, what you do is you, you hand over s- some ways actually that they can damage you in your career perhaps. To trust someone is always to hand yourself over to them in some way. And here's the point. What it is to trust God is to hand your entire self over to him and especially when it comes to forgiveness, to hand your conscience over to God. It's to say with fullness of heart, your judgment of me is the only one that matters. My sins, my weaknesses, my mistakes, my failures, every particle of my moral and spiritual ugliness, it's all yours to do with what you like. I'm not going to hang on to it. I'm not going to give it to anyone else to hang on to. I hand it over to you, God. I trust you with it. Now, just think about this for a moment, because it's kind of interesting. Um, Unbelievably dangerous thing to do, don't you think, to hand over your conscience to someone. But I I want you to think about, what else are you going to do? Are you going to give it to someone else other than God? No way. Are you going to keep control of your conscience yourself? As though you have the competence to be a judge in your own case. What else can you do? Who else can you trust? Except the one who gave his own son on that cross where all of our sins were uncovered on him. And he bore the shame and despised it. Where all of the judgment that we deserved was heaped onto him so that he was not justified, he was condemned. When all of our sin was reckoned onto his account so that he incurred infinite moral debt. Who else would you trust but someone who loves you like that? But it's one of the hardest things in all the world to do, to hand over your conscience like that to someone, to the living and true Lord. Because if there's anything we need to hang on to, we think we need to hang on to, it's our own right to judge ourselves. Which is just another way of saying it's our own right to be our own Lord and Master, to be in control of our lives. But faith, like Abraham had, is letting go of that. It's handing over precisely that right. Finding God to be so much more wise and so much more insightful and so much more tender and so much more gracious 
through the atoning sacrifice of his son than anyone else or you yourself would ever be with you. And as you do that more and more, as you learn to trust God in that kind of abandoned way, uh, of course, faith the size of a mustard seed is enough uh, for the Lord to work. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the gap between belief and experience at this point. As the voice of judgment in your head gets pushed further and further into the background because the booming, forgiving, justifying, sin-covering voice of God is the only one that you pay attention to anymore. Do you you see what happens in your heart? You're blessed. That gap just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as you're blessed, you become more and more and more a blessing to others. Because blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord does not reckon sin. Amen.